0: i Clark and this is the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app as we continue to motor through St. Paul's letter to the Romans and we are in the final chapter. In our last episode, we talked about Phoebe. Was she really an ordained female deacon in the New Covenant Church, in the New Testament Church, in the Catholic Church? I don't think she was, uh, but she was a servant of the community. There, there are more people, though, that Paul is greeting in this chapter than simply Phoebe herself. And you might think, what, what is the point of this for me today? He's greeting all these people. I don't know who these people are. We, we Historians don't know much about them either. How is this relevant to me? Well, you will see. You will see. I promise. Just hang with me here. Let's uh, go back to this greeting of various people that... Uh, Paul has here in chapter 16 we'll t- kind of take a look at it together uh, he starts off with verse one I commend to you our sister Phoebe a deaconess of the church at Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord as befits the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you for she has been a helper of many and of myself as well okay stop here for just a second like I said we talked about Phoebe last time just a couple of, of additional notes that I didn't mention in the last episode there was sort of a, a group of what were called deaconesses in the early church, and I don't know at what point exactly this got started. It might have been as early as when Paul was writing. These were women who assisted in baptisms, especially of other women, at the Easter vigil, helped them get into their baptismal robes. Obviously, there were issues of decorum there, uh, So, that, but this was not a... Uh, an ordained ministry, uh, like the diaconate that we have today. So, want to keep that in mind. But again, she was the word deacon here uh, can also mean servant, just in a more broad sense of the term. And it's quite likely that Phoebe was a wealthy businesswoman uh, who shared of her largesse, if you will, and helped to support the church. And Paul is essentially a lot of this chapter is essentially a reference letter for Phoebe. She's on her way to Rome. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to the Romans from Corinth, and Centria is nearby. And so he knows Phoebe. He's basically sending her on the way to Rome. She doesn't know anybody there. Uh, they don't have a lot of hotels there. Uh, they don't have Hilton's. They don't have Holiday Inn's. But there are people that you can stay with. And so he's basically saying, hey, I'm vouching for her. and And also... All these people that Paul's going to greet by name here, she's going to meet them when she shows up in Rome. So let's look at verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I, but also all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Greet also the church in their house. Okay, let's actually stop there and talk about Prisca and Aquila. Now, depending on what English translation of the Bible you have, it might actually say Priscilla, but in the Greek, it's actually Prisca. Now, you probably heard about Priscilla and Aquila. Prisca is the same thing as Priscilla. Prisca is simply a nickname for Priscilla. And it does in the Greek text actually say Prisca, but some English translations just kind of spell out her whole name. But nonetheless, Priscilla and Aquila were a married couple who were companions of Paul during his ministry. And in fact, as he says later, they risked their necks for his life. Now, when did this happen? Probably when there was a great riot in the city of Ephesus, and they might have gotten Paul out of that jam. So let's look at uh, when they first met. Let's look at uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 2. So what's going on here in Acts chapter 18 is it narrates the fact that Paul was in Athens. as this incredible homily, sermon, talk at the Areopagus in Athens. In chapter 17, you can read that. And then it says, after this, verse 1 of chapter 18 of Acts. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found, verse 2, A Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. Now, we talked about this when we introduced the letter to the Romans. Don't forget that Claudius was the emperor at the time in the the years 41 to 54 AD. And he had kicked out all the Jews from Rome because there, there was all kinds of fights, social disturbances going on, and they're really all about Jesus. And they didn't really know who Jesus was, the Romans at this point, uh, the Roman officials, that is. And there was a series of disturbances that took place instigated by a certain Christus. Now, this is a reference to Jesus Christ, the Latin Christus. So they simply misunderstood you know, essentially the emperor was asking, Hey, what's going on? What's with these riots? Oh about they're kind of started by this guy named Crestus, or it's all about this guy named Crestus. Well, I don't know who this guy is, but we are kicking all of the Jews out of Rome. Because essentially there there were people were very confused about the nature of the faith. Of course, it springs from Judaism. And many of the early Christians, of course, were Jewish. All of them were Jewish in the beginning. Of course, Gentiles were evangelized as well, and they're kind of mixing together. In Rome, and we're not 100% sure what the disputes were about, but in all likelihood, it was the synagogues of Rome, the Jewish synagogues of Rome, a lot of the members were obviously against this idea of Jesus as Messiah, whereas some Jews had come to believe in Jesus as Messiah, just as St. Paul himself was a Jew who did not think Jesus was the Messiah and was persecuting his fellow Jews who had come to believe in him. Jesus changed his mind of course on the road to Damascus, changed his life. So Priscilla and Aquila were already Catholics at that point and they had they were part of the, the group of people that got kicked out. So they show up in Corinth and that's when they meet Paul and this is this is just a, a amazing. It says here that uh, Paul went to see them verse three and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they worked. For by trade they were tent makers, and he argued in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded Jews and Greeks. So we know that Paul supported himself through his ministry, through his trade of tent making. And obviously uh, Priscilla and Aquila did the exact same thing. And Priscilla and Aquila seem to have been people of means. Uh, they had some wealth. Now, as we'll see, members of the church in Rome, it was a a vast array of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some were slaves, some were former slaves or freed people, freed men and women, and others were, were actually quite wealthy, and they were able to host the believers in their homes where they would have house churches. The church did not own any public buildings in the first century. The church was illegal underground against the law for the first three centuries of the Roman Empire. In the fourth century, of course, uh, Constantine converts the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, and he legalizes the faith. And after that, they're able to get some public lands, build some churches, some great basilicas, many of which are still around to this day. But it wasn't that way back then. They would meet in secret Masses would be held in secret. They were private. They were not open to anyone. You had to be initiated. You had to be quote-unquote enlightened, and that means that you were baptized to get into the liturgy of the Eucharist, and, and really probably even the whole Mass. We have this practice now in our modern-day church in which very often the catechumens kind of leave <laughs> after the Uh, Depending on how things are done in your local parish, they might leave after the Liturgy of the Word and have some sort of a study group in the basement or the church hall or something like that. But in most places, even catechumens, uh, they do stick around uh, for the Liturgy of the Eucharist. That wasn't the case in the first century world. And a lot of that was due to the fact that there were many, many misunderstandings about what Catholics believed. They were accused of being being cannibals. Again, Again, you could pay with your life if you were caught uh, in the first centuries, being a Catholic Christian. So okay, let, let's let's continue on with um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Another thing that's that's intriguing about them, and uh, we can read this in Romans sixteen, is that they did eventually obviously make it back to the city and they supported um, Paul in many ways. But one other thing that they did, of note, is that they discipled someone named Apollos. Now, Apollos was a preacher in the early church and he was very eloquent, somewhat like Paul, very intelligent, but he was lacking some, really some basic information about the faith. If you look just a a little bit later down in Acts chapter 18, starting with verse 24, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, and Alexandria was a really the repository of great learning in the ancient world, Alexandria, Egypt, famous library there. He came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to receive him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully confuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So what's great about this incident is that Apollos was obviously, he kind of had a PhD, he was really eloquent, he was really well-trained, but he was missing some very basic information. And sometimes in our lives as Catholics, we are called upon to share about our faith with people who are smarter than us, with people who are better than us in certain regards. Not, not better ontologically in terms of, you know, they're on, not a different different life form, but they may have skills and gifts and abilities that we don't have. And we might say to ourselves, well, who am I to to try to help this person or who am I to try to teach this person? Well, sometimes we have to, and God calls us to, disciple people that might be smarter than us because we have information that they don't have and we can help them. And God can use this person and their skills in very powerful ways. And that's exactly what uh, Priscilla and Aquila did. They discipled Paul. kind of pulled him aside and said, hey, man, you're lacking some basic information here. Let me fill you in. Let me fill, it, fill in the blanks here for you. And it helped him a lot. I'm sure he was quite thankful for it. So they were great partners with Paul, Priscilla and Aquila. And now let's look at the next little group of people that we have here. Let's look at verse uh, five. Paul says, Greet also the church in their house, and that's the house of Priscilla and Aquila. Greet my beloved Epinitus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Now, that's really interesting. We don't, we don't know much about this guy, but Eponetus, his reputation precedes him because he was the first person to accept the gospel as preached by Paul, and so he was very special to Paul, and i'm sure it wasn't easy for this guy being the only one at the time okay i buy this i have there's nobody else here with me but i know that this is true and i and i believe this so he was the first fruits if you will to use a farming metaphor a harvest metaphor uh, which is very common in the new testament and then we have in verse 6 paul says greet mary who has worked hard among you now mary we don't know whether she was jewish or from a pagan background uh, because there were some Romans who also had the name Mary. Uh, but very often it is a Hebrew name. Uh, the name Miriam essentially is what it is in Hebrew. Moses' sister was named Miriam. And of course, Mary, Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That was her name as well, Miriam. Uh, so another Mary here. Greet. There's lots of Marys in the New Testament. Greet Mary who has worked hard among you. Verse 7 of Romans 16. Greet Andronicus and Junius. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners they are men of note among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. I want to talk about these people as well because just as there's controversy surrounding um, Phoebe and whether she was an ordained deacon, don't think she was uh the same the same sort of controversy erupts about Andronicus and Junius because. Uh, In, for example, the Revised Standard Version translation of the Bible, which I'm reading from right now, kind of makes it sound like Junius is a guy. Andronicus and Junius. Um, And later on, Paul says they are men of note in this particular translation. Well, in other English translations, it doesn't say Junius. It says Junia. Junia. And it simply says they were outstanding among the apostles. Instead of saying they are men of note, why are they called apostles? So, is this person a woman or a man, Junia or Junius? And if it's a woman, was she an apostle? Does this mean that women can be apostles, women can be priests, women can be bishops? Again, just as was the case with Phoebe, the deaconess, uh, the name doesn't mean what people might think it means. All right. Well. The word apostle can be used in different ways. There's a, I would say, a capital A use of the word apostle, like the 12 apostles of Christ. But there's also a small a apostle, as it were. The word apostle, which translated as apostle in English, simply means messenger, one who is sent. And many, many people were messengers of Jesus Christ that were not part of the twelve. They were not part of the hierarchy of the church. All of us are sent, all of us are called to, to do apostolate and to be apostles by virtue of our baptism. We are to, we're sent among, sometimes very, very near at home, uh, the guy in the next cubicle, the people in our home and on our street. Sometimes we are sent around the world as missionaries, but nonetheless, all of us who are baptized are apostles in that sense. So I think in all likelihood, that is what's going on here. Um, it has nothing to do with ordained ministry. Although the, the, the sort of textual evidence that we have, manuscripts of Romans that have popped up, seem to indicate probably the argument that it is a woman. It's probably a married couple, Andronicus and Junia. It's probably likely that she is a woman. Uh, could be wrong, though. We don't know 100%. And they are relative. Paul says they're relatives of his. What, what, that, what he means by that is that they are fellow Jews. And they have also suffered, just as Paul did. They were in prison as well at some point. uh, Whether they were thrown in prison with Paul at some point, it's hard to know. Whether they also were in prison just for preaching the faith, Uh, they have suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's a few other names here that we'll try to get to here. In verse 8, Greet Ampliatus my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and me, my beloved Statius. Verse 10, greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. You ever heard of Narcissus? Was, was he narcissistic? Was he kind of self-centered? Not really. No, just kidding. I'll tell you about him in just a second. But, We don't know a whole lot about these people. Again, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Apellus, they belong to the household of Aristobulus. And that simply means Aristobulus isn't around. Um, He's not actually in the church, but they belong to his household. What does that mean? Essentially, that probably means they are slaves in his household. They work for him. Um, (laughs) Might not be of their own free will either. Aristobulus, who is this guy? We don't really know for sure, but Herod Agrippa I had a brother named Aristobulus, who was actually who actually died in Rome in the year 48 or 49 before Paul wrote this letter. So it might be the same guy. Might be the same guy. Herodian was probably, according to one scholar, a freed slave who took the name of a Herodian family that he served. That's why he's called Herodian. Now, Narcissus. Also, in all likelihood, a freed slave. There was a guy. There was a guy um, named Narcissus who committed suicide, and he was uh, actually threatened by the crazy emperor Nero's mother, Agrippina, and he, he, she was basically like, "I'm going to kill you," and tragically, he committed suicide, killed himself. So, people from his household were members of the church at Rome. So there's, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff here, for sure. And, and we're, we're going to have to finish the rest of this later. But one thing we can take away from this, as Paul is mentioning individual people with real lives, real stories, when we are ministering to people ourselves, we have to understand that people really matter to God. Um Love is never in the general. Love is always in the particular. Whether that's that's true of marriage, you're not called to marriage in general. You're called to marry a specific person if you're called to marriage. I was called to marry Patricia. And when it comes to the faith, the gospel is for everyone for sure, but it's also very incarnational. Not only did Christ become a specific concrete man, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, These are very specific people that Paul was getting to know, that he was preaching to them. And that made all the difference. So we need to really befriend people. We really need to have those personal relationships. And I think that's the best way, in many ways, to share the faith through, uh, as one saint said, St. Jose Maria Escrivá, an apostolate of friendship and trust. It just kind of hits different when you hear words from a friend who knows you and you know who loves you rather than just some preacher, some guy giving a talk. Because it can go in one ear and out the other, but it it hits different when it's a personal relationship. There's so many things we could say about that. Individuals matter, and every single person matters greatly to God. In fact, just one individual life and soul is greater than the whole world, as Jesus says, the whole created order. Unbelievable! All right, we've run out of time for now, but we'll have more on Romans in the next episode of The Faith Explained. I'm your host, Kyle Clark. Right now, going to hop into our Q and A mailbag. Let's see what the question is for today. Okay, as we open up our Faith Explained Q and A mailbag today, I want to remind you you can email me your question. The address is faith at relevantradio dot F A I T H at relevantradio dot com. You can also send me a message on the X app. You can follow me there at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. So this question comes to me via email, and it's from Chris, who's listening in one of my favorite cities in the world, San Diego, California, 1000 AM, K-C-E-O, Relevant Radio. So here's this question. He says, Dear Kale, the question was asked in our Bible study group, Where do we Catholics get this idea of offering up our pains and sufferings with Christ's? Let me know. Thanks, Chris in San Diego. uh, This is a a great question, especially comes up a lot during the season of Lent. This idea of offering up our mortifications, offering up our pains and sufferings. Well, Really, it does. It does. It does have a, a source in the scripture, which I'll get to in just a second. But I read an interesting little essay on this written by Elizabeth Scalia, who uh, blogged for many years as the anchoress and also uh, wrote for a while for Word on Fire. And uh, she wrote this this little piece for them called "Let's Get Reacquainted with the Idea of Offering It Up." And especially if you're of a certain age, you, you'll kind of recognize this mindset, which maybe is a little bit uh, unknown to modern day Catholics. But she writes this quote, We Catholics who grew up straddling the cusp of the conciliar divide, and that refers to Vatican II the Council. We may have a vague memory of the phrase, offer it up. It was advice frequently given by the sisters who taught us our catechisms. When you are in pain, When you are disappointed, when your feelings have been hurt, offer these things up to the Lord and ask him to use your suffering, that he join it to his own pain on the cross for the good of others. Offer it as penance for your own sins or the sins of those who cannot or will not do penance for themselves. Offer it for the sick, the lonely, or for their intentions. And she writes, penance has received a bad name over the last 40 or so years, largely because it was taught to so many in the language of punishment rather than the language of virtue, offering, and peace. So why not penance? Why not take some of our suffering and rather than popping a pill, endure it for a bit, live with it, and in it. And do something with it, make it worthwhile instead of meaningless. If we are told to offer it up at all today, it is usually in a tone of sarcasm or very weak irony. To we moderns, the concept has come to be regarded like you know, the practice of of, of um, striking one's breast, for example, when when you say, you know, "Have mercy on me, a sinner." It's it's seen by many as a quaint throwback to a time when notions of sin and reparation seem to consume entirely too much of the Catholic sensibility, she writes. The idea of offering it up has fallen under the false but widely promulgated cultural disdain for something called Catholic guilt, which is in truth the marginalizing dismissal of the Catholic conscience. Far from being a picturesque and nonchalant there-there to someone enduring either a minor inconvenience or a larger concern, Offer It Up is powerful theological advice that comes to us directly from Scripture. So she's going to talk about the, the Scripture passage in play here. As Paul writes to the Colossians, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And I fill up. On my part, that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church." Quote. Now that is a very, very important passage from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians that Elizabeth Scalia mentions here. I fill up in my body that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. St. Paul said this in Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Now, it puzzles many people uh, when Paul wrote these words, "I complete in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body," that is the church. Was there anything lacking in Christ's afflictions and his suffering for us on the cross? No. nothing was lacking. How can Paul say that? The reason is because the church is the mystical body of christ christ comes to us in three ways and three bodies as it were his physical body in which he was incarnate suffered on the cross was raised from the dead ascended into heaven then of course there's his eucharistic body and he and then he also obviously has his mystical body the church and you and i are part of the mystical body there is a measure of suffering that god has appointed to the mystical body of christ the church and so that's what's going on here. Paul is trying to do his part as a member, as a part of the mystical body of Christ, the church. And we all have to do that. And so when we when we apply um, this to our lives, this idea of offering up our sacrifices, we, as Elizabeth, as Elizabeth Scalia writes later in her piece, we unleash love onto the world. It can really make a huge difference in people's spiritual lives, including our own. Including our own, because we live in this culture in this world that wants to eliminate pain at all costs, doesn't see any good in suffering. Is it going to be painful? Yeah. But the only wasted suffering is when you don't offer it up, is when you don't spiritually profit from it or allow other people to spiritually profit from it. So let's make use of it. The little crosses that God sends us each day, and the voluntary ones that we pick up ourselves, voluntary mortification, and we offer these things up for our spiritual good and the good of others. For The Faith Explained, I'm Cale Clark. Thank you, Chris in San Diego, for your excellent question. And you can write to me as well if you're listening right now. Need some more questions, send them to me. The email address is faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app, at Kale Clark. And We'll catch you later today, 5 p.m. Central, for The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Stay tuned for Father Simon Says.